Good morning, this is the last part of our look through Corinthians, it's uh, chapter 15 and 16, and it starts all about resurrection. And Paul begins his closing chapters reminding the church of the gospel message that he has preached to them. So read the first eight verses, read verses one to eight. It's not very long, but it's good and deep, and this is the crux of the gospel message. Well, if you read that, does that fit with what you understand of the good news? Does anything that Paul says in the first eight verses surprise you or stand out? And does reading this short gospel message help confirm your faith? Now let's get some context. In the world at the time, there was a large debate about whether or not there was a resurrection of the dead, which is actually similar today. The question is being asked, did Jesus actually get resurrected? Did he physically get resurrected? Was he spiritually resurrected? Is it all nonsense? And the Jewish communities back then, as we might know, had Pharisees and Sadducees, and Pharisees believed that there will be a resurrection, and the Sadducees believed there was no resurrection at all. And for the Greeks, there were similar questions, specifically for the Greeks and Corinthians, it was that physical, the physical body is just evil, and the spiritual self is good. So Jesus couldn't have been resurrected physically if he was resurrected, it had to just be a spirit. And... Obviously, these kind of questions are still around, you know, there are other faiths, there are atheists and all sorts of people having debates about this. But the important issue comes in verse 14, where Paul says, if Christ hadn't been raised, and he means physically raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. And for the Corinthians, obviously, this comes on this moment of, oh, is there a resurrection? There are gods, sure, but they're far away, maybe, are they really close? And so maybe if there was a resurrection, the physical body's bad, so Jesus must have been resurrected in spirit, right? And that would have been a change to the whole story. And so as Paul states, he says, look, if Jesus wasn't literally physically resurrected into a physical body to come and hang out with his people again, proving that death, in the way we understand it, is totally conquered, verse 15, we are bearing a false witness about God. If the resurrection hadn't happened, everything in the whole of the New Testament, at least the whole of the New Testament, worthless. And he needs the church to be clear about this in the faith. If there's no resurrection, the faith topples. Christ is not raised, therefore we're still in our sins, and those people who have died don't have any hope. And what's more, if there is no resurrection, our hope in Christ is only for when we're alive now. We have hope when we're alive, but there's nothing after death, so how pitiful is that? And that's a hard challenge. But we have to be clear about our faith. Jesus was raised physically by the Spirit, but he wasn't raised as a spirit. He wasn't raised as a ghost. Physically raised by the power of the Spirit into a physical body, defeating death, or all that we're preaching is pointless. And look at verse 20 to 22. Look at the comparisons that he's making. And look at how everything in the Bible from the beginning ties together into Christ and is linked beautifully. From one person, Adam, came death, and from one person comes resurrection in Christ. Let's take some time to read verses 24 to 28. This is a huge promise for what is to come. Jesus will destroy all the dominions and powers that oppress and control and hurt and finally destroy death. And with this in mind, Paul challenges the church, and we can learn something of the horrible fate that actually awaited a lot of the Christians. If you read verse 30 to 32, which says, As for us, why would we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. 
just as sure as I boast to you in Christ Jesus. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, well then we may as well eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And you may have heard that saying, you know, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. Because Paul, and this is from the Bible, people don't know that, Paul is effectively saying that if Jesus wasn't resurrected, then why would we bother risking our lives for the good news? Just follow that Epicurean maxim, living a life to the full, full of pleasure and wealth and sex and drink until you burn out and die. And that is a very old view that is, quite surprisingly, or maybe unsurprisingly, out and about in our world today. Life is all about living to the max, experiencing all the most amazing things all the time, and, you know, having as much wealth and as much, you know, power and all the crazy stuff that you can, because life is about fun and excitement. That's a view we have now. It's not called Epicureanism anymore, but that's kind of what it is. You know, the gods are far away, do what you want, it's your life. So here's a question, have you met or been friends with, or have you had, that worldview? That's the Epicurean worldview that we have only human hope to live as hard as possible because, hey, tomorrow we die, so live life as hard as possible. In that worldview, has life actually been filled with joy and hope and contentment? Or is there something missing? Because Paul says there's a futility in this ideology. He says that people need to come back to their senses. So if you read verses 35 to 45 to finish up this part of chapter 15, and that might be a lot to go through, but Paul is using the image of the seeds that become different kinds, um, seeds in different kinds of flesh to explain that we have to die in order to be raised. So a seed goes into the ground, it quote-unquote dies, and then blossoms into a flower or into a tree. Our imperfect bodies will die, and then if they're raised by the power of the Spirit, they grow into newer, stronger bodies, just as Jesus was raised. And he uses a dual image to show how much better the next life will be. The body, like the seed, is perishable. The raised body is imperishable. It dies in dishonor, in sin, and is raised in honor, in the love of Jesus. It dies in weakness, and is raised in strength. It dies in natural, physical ways, and is raised in spiritual power. Adam, Christ, dust, heaven. We bear the image of earthly humans, but we will bear the image of Christ, the heavenly one. So if you just finish up reading the chapter, and this is the fullness of the good news condensed into one chapter of Corinthians, the new life in Christ is not floating spirits or ghostly essences far away from earth. The new life in Christ is the new body, raised in God's power, like Jesus was mortal by God's might. And in Ephesus um, and Corinth there was confusion about the afterlife. The idea that when we die our spirits will float off to another world where the gods live, far away from the troubles of earth. This kind of thinking has stayed with us even to today, that God is far away and heaven is like a different planet, far away. And when we die we will leave the world we live in and go away. And that's not actually the gospel. The gospel is that God, who might have been far away, we don't know, is actually very close. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is actually on earth, like a mantle around its shoulders, ready to make things new, ready to raise us and the world in the power of God's spirit. 
new heavens, new earth. And that view might annoy some listeners, and that's okay. What do you think about the new heaven, the new bodies that Paul's explaining to his readers? Do we understand this good news to mean that we die and go to heaven? Or do we read it and read that we will die and be reborn in God's power and made perfect in the power of the Holy Spirit into the new earth? And we'll finish here with chapter 16. It's a fairly lengthy personal list of requests and greetings, as most of the letters are. But it does open with an interesting bit about the collection for the Lord's people. If you look at verse 1 and 4, Paul is assuming the people in the church will want to give for the benefit of others. It's so ingrained into church thinking and lifestyle that he doesn't ask for money. He simply says, set aside the money based on your income. You know, the Christians here are so eager to give. Paul expects them to. And they can trust him that the money isn't going into his own pocket, but to help those in poorer churches. He doesn't expect them to bankrupt themselves, but he does expect them to be generous. And it's not like a like a manipulative thing. It's just so part of Christian culture that he just expects them to have stuff to give him to give others and the unity and support of the church we see here is going way beyond just the locality it's not just there's a Corinthian church and then two miles down the road there's a poor Corinthian church that he's going to help it's that all the churches from Corinth to Rome to Macedonia which are hundreds of miles apart they are all linked in Christ and so, of course, they will all be given to one another. They'll be given to churches and people they've never even met just because they're Christians and they need. And Paul wants the church in one location to be united. But that is a small-scale vision of the global church united, or it should be. And that's what Paul is doing every single day of his life. He's going all around the churches, and that's why these letters are still so important to read and understand. He wants all the Christians everywhere to be united, to be giving of to one another, so that those who have lots won't have too much, and those who have little won't ever have too little. He's not just talking to one church for its own sake. He's talking to one church so that that one church can be giving to all the churches. And our Christian brothers and sisters in other churches will need our help and support as well as well as the ones in our home church. Just let that be a bit of a challenge for our future going forward, especially at this time when churches are going to be a bit you know, fluid and confused. It's not just about faith church. It's not just about your home. It's about the church down the road, the church of a different denomination, the church in the next city, the ter- church in the next country, the church in the next continent. That's the vision that's the unity that this whole letter is kind of pushing towards so if you've been challenged at all if you have any questions or any arguments get in touch